Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to Grant Memorial. My name is Cam, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today, we continue to walk through our series in the Gospel of Mark. So with that said, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 10, where our journey continues. Starting in Mark chapter 10, in verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. But they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today uh, humbly. Lord, I I ask, Lord, that as we uh, address, as we tackle this uh, difficult teaching in your word, God, that you would give us clarity that you would give us uh, soft hearts, Lord, for your, your word to land on our hearts, that we would be uh, encouraged where we need to be encouraged and challenged where we need to be challenged and changed where we need to be changed. God, give us eyes to see what you're saying. Give us uh, hearts to know what it is that you are speaking to us. God, I pray that as I teach, Lord, that if there's anything to come out of my mouth that's not from you, that you would uh, help me miss those words or, or bite my tongue. Lord, we just want to honor you. Lord, we want to be faithful to the text. And I just pray, Lord, for humility for all of us as we approach this together. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as we mentioned a few weeks back, Jesus and the disciples at this point in in their journey are, are making their final journey towards Jerusalem, where Jesus will be handed over to the Romans to be executed. Right? And along the way, Jesus has been trying to prepare his disciples for what will happen by teaching them to, to some mixed results. And our text picks up this morning as the disciples uh, reach Judea and cross over the Jordan into Perea. There should be a map, I think, popping up somewhere. There we go. So they, they travel from Galilee down into Judea, and then they cross over into Perea for one last bit of ministry in the Transjordan before they'll turn back and uh, cross back over into Judea and the path to the cross. 
And the text says here that in Perea, the crowds have found Jesus again, right? Jesus was somewhat successful in getting away from the crowds to teach his disciples, but the crowds have found him again. Verse 1, Jesus left that place, went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus was teaching the crowds, and what we know about the crowds is that the crowds always seem to contain some Pharisees, don't they? Right? Some Jewish religious leaders who aren't exactly fans of Jesus. And these particular Pharisees, we read, do not have good intentions. Verse 2, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So right off the top, we see that the Pharisees are not that interested in learning from Jesus as the crowd was. They were simply trying to test him, or better yet, trap him through their question. Now, how is this particular question about divorce a potential trap for Jesus? Well, there are two possible pitfalls for Jesus here. First of all, if you remember back to Mark chapter 6, what was it that got John the Baptist killed? You remember that? Ultimately, it was his criticism of the divorce and remarriage of Herod Antipas, who ruled in that region. Right? John told Herod that what he was doing was wrong, and Herodias, the woman that he remarried, specifically took issue with this, and John was arrested and eventually executed. So there's a very real possibility that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to condemn divorce and remarriage in the region where Herod reigned, right? There's another map here. Uh, the green areas are the areas uh, that, that uh, were under Herod Antipas's control. And you see that the star where they are right now is right in the middle of Herod's kingdom, right? Right there in Perea. And so... Uh, they are trying, right, to get Jesus to condemn the divorce and remarriage that includes Herod with the hopes that Jesus would face a similar fate to John the Baptist, right? This is conniving stuff, right? Think about this. The Pharisees were very calculated in their interactions with Jesus, and this question seems to be one of the most overt ways they were trying to put an end to his ministry, Remember, several times throughout the Gospels, we read that the Pharisees brainstormed to see how they could get Jesus killed, right? And this question in, in Herod's region was likely one of the ideas that they came up with. Now, in addition to all of this, this discussion about divorce was a common argument within Juda Judaism during Jesus' day. You see, where Jesus, uh, when Jesus lived, there were two main rabbinical traditions or schools of thought. There was the school of Shammai, which was quite conservative, and the school of Hillel, which was much more liberal in their contemporary interpretations of the law, including their interpretations around the legitimacy of divorce. And so asking Jesus this question was, in a sense, asking Jesus to take a side Right? Did he side with Shammai or Hillel? And his answer to this question would likely have stirred up more hatred for him from the opposing camp. And even those uh, in the camp that he sided with may not have taken too kindly to being associated with Jesus. So this was kind of a lose-lose situation for Jesus. Again, the Pharisees were calculated, and they meant harm for Jesus and his ministry. But as usual... Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. 
Well, he will eventually answer the question. Jesus, as he always does, doesn't simply answer. Rather, he puts the ball back in the Pharisees' court. Verse 3. What did Moses command you, he replied. Right? Jesus says, what does the law say? You, who have put the law above all else, must know what the law says. So you tell me if divorce is acceptable. Right? He's saying, oh, okay, if we're going to talk about divorce in the land of a king who has infamously been divorced and is still quite sensitive about it, you make the statement. Not only that, Jesus is also beginning to give his own answer to the question through his question in a way that the Pharisees don't see yet. You see, Jesus asked them, what did Moses command? Well, the truth is, Moses didn't command anything regarding divorce. He made allowance for it and didn't actually specify grounds for divorce, which is precisely why there's a debate amongst these two rabbinical camps. Right? Jesus points to the flaw of their question. They were asking Jesus to confirm the law regarding divorce, but there was no law regarding divorce. Well, predictably, the Pharisees answer the way Jesus thinks they will. He asks, what did Moses say? And they respond in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And here, they are referencing Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, notice that that sentence isn't over, but that's where the Pharisees stop. Right? They tell Jesus that Moses says divorce is fine. Right? As long as there's something indecent about the woman and as long as the husband provides a certificate of divorce. Now, does anyone else see a problem with this answer? Well, what is meant by the term indecent? Right? And this is precisely why there's a, there was a debate around this law. The conservative school of Shammai believed that indecent referred to adultery. And so, so they taught that divorce was only permissible in the case of adultery. While the more liberal school of Hillel taught that indecent was intentionally vague and therefore divorce was appropriate for a myriad of things, including famously if a woman burned her husband's meal. True story. And here's the problem. Both camps allowed for divorce, but their acceptable, acceptable grounds differed quite drastically. And they were trying to use Moses' words to back up their own ideas. Well, very quickly, Jesus shoots down both camps, questioning the very text that they thought defended their position. Verse 5. Jesus says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. Right? Jesus refers them back to the context of the verse that they were referring to. Right? Let's, let's look at the whole passage that they were using to justify divorce. Right? Not just Deuteronomy 24.1, but let's read Deuteronomy 24.1-4. to It says this, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, this is where the Pharisees stopped. And after she leaves his house, 
she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That's the context of the verse that they were quoting. Right? It's not talking about grounds for divorce. It's not advocating for divorce. Its purpose is to forbid a husband from remarrying his wife after he has divorced her and she remarries. Right? And this is for the protection of the woman. New Testament scholar Mark Strauss writes that this law was likely to emphasize the finality of the divorce and so protect the woman from accusations of adultery or from the first husband's attempts to ruin her second marriage. Additionally, it may have prevented the first husband from exploiting her for financial gain by remarrying her to reclaim the dowry or to get the inheritance from her second husband. Friends, this is not a law, or this is a law meant to protect women from the implications of divorce, not to provide legitimate reasons for divorce in the first place. Right? Since divorce was happening due to the hardness of people's hearts, Jesus says, Moses made regulations to protect the vulnerable victims from being taken advantage of. Right? And making regulations to govern something that was already happening is much different than teaching or condoning it. The Pharisees' logic would be like saying that making a law against arson is an endorsement of arsony because it's acknowledged. No, arson happens, so laws are made in an attempt to restrict it and limit its impact. Right? Jesus is pointing out that the command, remember what Jesus asked them? The command wasn't about divorce. The command was about protecting the vulnerable. It was about limiting the impact of divorce when it unfortunately happened, not about providing justification for initiating it. And then, after delegitimizing the proof text that the Pharisees were leaning on, Jesus begins to provide his own answer to the question about divorce. He says, well, you have been going back to an out-of-context concession of Moses you should be going back to the very beginning to see what God's intentions for marriage were in the first place before you decide if and when ending it is appropriate. Right? Relational and sexual ethics don't start with a list of what we can and cannot do. Right? They always start with the question, what is the point? Right? How do you know if something is a perversion if you don't know what the normative intent is? How do you know if you've hit or missed the target when you don't know what the target is? And so Jesus says, before we talk about the end of marriage, let's go back to the beginning of marriage to see what it is meant for in the first place, and out of that we can discuss if such a thing can come to an end. So rather than going back to the book of Deuteronomy like the Pharisees, Jesus goes back to Genesis where it all began. And he quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, saying in Mark 10, 6 to 8, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. 
You see, Jesus doesn't have an isolated conversation about divorce, right? He starts off by teaching about marriage and God's original plan for the family, right? And it is here that the context is provided to have any other conversation. And I think, church, that we should be paying attention to Jesus here, right? Any conversation about marriage or sexuality doesn't exist in a vacuum. It must begin with context, Right? In our culture, many want to begin conversations with us uh, simply by asking like the Pharisees did, do you think this is okay? Or do you think that is wrong? And like Jesus, we would be wise to not have those conversations in a vacuum. For the Christian, it starts with God's design. Right? We believe that in the beginning, God created us for a purpose. That who we are and the way we are are for a purpose. And the way we are called to live is for a purpose. We don't just think that certain arbitrary things are right or wrong. Our beliefs go further back than that to the creative intentionality of God and the conviction that he and his ways are good. Right? What we think about all sorts of things comes out of a Genesis 1 to 3 worldview. That in the beginning, God created Right? Everything begins here. And if we don't believe that, that in the beginning God created, that an intentional God designed, then we don't have much grounds to argue for anything else we may find in the way of Scripture. Right? The way Jesus answers this question about divorce and the way we ought to answer the question of about almost anything is to go back to the beginning and acknowledge the goodness and intentionality of God. And we see this here. You see, the very first thing that Jesus says in his response is God created. Right? He says God made. Affirming that marriage is something that God has gifted to humanity. And if it was designed and gifted, it has meaning and a purpose. And after making that declaration that marriage comes from God, Jesus unpacks what God's intent for marriage is. The first thing Jesus teaches here is that marriage is between one man and one woman. And he starts off this assertion by affirming that gender is binary, right? That God created men and God created women. Verse 6, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, I don't want to be insensitive or downplay the devastating reality of gender dysphoria that some struggle with. But church, there is no gender spectrum or gender fluidity in the Bible. Right? In God's intended purpose, there is male and there is female. Our biological sex is not something we need to overcome, as some in our culture may say. But it is a part of the divine work of creation as God created us in his image. Now the text that Jesus quotes to say this in Genesis 1.27 makes this point even clearer. He said, this is what it says in Genesis 1.27. God created mankind, how? In his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Right? Male and female are a part of God's divine creation of humans in his own image. So in our maleness, in our femaleness, we reflect the image of God. 
Right? If, if God made you male, he did that on purpose, and he called it good. If God made you female, he did that on purpose, and he called it good. Right? The Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, is that there are two genders, and that biological sex is important and meaningful. Right? And while our culture isn't sure what it believes, while our culture is confused at one moment declaring that gender is a social construct and doesn't mean anything, and the next elevating specific genders or naming them by the dozen, there is no confusion when it comes to what the Bible says about gender. We don't even need to turn the first page. Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. And Jesus, unprovoked, Notice that wasn't even the question he was asked. Unprovoked goes out of his way to start with this truth. So after establishing that there are two biological sexes, Jesus goes on to say that marriage is designed as a union for one of each of these sexes, one man and one woman. Verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Right? Jesus, in describing marriage, says a man leaves his father and mother united to his wife. A man and his wife. The text does not describe uh, generic people here. Nor does this text simply mean spouse or life partner. This is gender specific. Right? God's intended plan for marriage is between a man and a woman who both, created in the image of God, reflect God's glory as they're unified. And note that this text is not simply descriptive of what happened in the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve happened to be male and female, but they could have been any gender. No, this text is prescriptive of the design of marriage. For this reason, the text says. There's intentionality. For this reason, men leave their families and cleave to their wives. Right? This is the normative plan for all of marriage as set out from the very beginning. Now, before we move on, it must be stated that all of this is Christian morality. This is what Christians believe because we believe that God created. And we believe that his intentions are good and we believe that his word is true. But there are many who do not share these views. In fact, today in our country, most do not share these views that marriage is limited to a man and woman, or that the terms male and female are even appropriate or exclusive, or that the Bible is true or has any relevance regarding human sexuality and marriage. And church, we need to know that in this world that we find ourselves, our job is not to be the morality police of our culture. Right? We cannot expect our culture that does not believe in the Bible to live out the biblical commands of the Bible any more than Muslims should expect us to live out Islamic law. Right? We don't believe in the Quran, and so it doesn't make sense for anyone to expect us to live out its morality, and it's the same with our culture and the Bible. The example that I like to use is the example of a dietitian. Right? If I'm a dietitian. Now, you're really going to have to use your imaginations here. If, if I'm a dietitian and you came to me telling me that you want to follow the keto diet, 
Well, in that case, I have all sorts of rules and regulations for you to follow in order to live a keto lifestyle. But it doesn't follow that as a dietitian that I demand that others who do not want to do keto follow the same rules. Right? I can't go into a McDonald's and, say, and tell everybody they can't have a bun or they shouldn't eat fries when they want nothing to do with eating keto. Right? Well, in the same way as a pastor, if someone comes to me and says that they want to live biblically, in line with the scriptures, that they want to follow the teachings and commands of Jesus, I have all sorts of things to tell them and God-given laws there to follow in order to live biblically. But as with the dietitian, I, I can't impose biblical laws and restrictions on people who have no interest in living biblically or who don't believe that the word of God means anything. Now, we certainly pray for others, and we speak the truth in love when we have the chance, but the Christian calling is not to picket those who disagree with us or demand that they live a gospel life even though they haven't yet been changed by the gospel. Now, I know that this is somewhat simplistic, and our lives are much more nuanced, but church, our role is for us, those who know and love the word of God, to ourselves live in a way that honors God's word. Right? In the Old Testament, God uh, gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the laws that followed, but he didn't uh, tell the Israelites to now go and impose these views on those other peoples who didn't believe in or worship him. Right? God told them the truth so they could live in line with his best, and by doing so, they would stand out as a people set apart for him. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, You have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God, and he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. Right? And this command to stand out, to be set apart, extends to us as well. Philippians 2.14-15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Right? Those of us who know and love God and follow his ways will stand out as we live according to his will. But as mentioned earlier, Someone who doesn't believe the first thing that Jesus said, God created, will not come to the same conclusions as we do. And until they get that part, that God designed them, loves them, gave himself so they may have true and authentic life and has a purpose for them to live out on this earth, they will not be open to submit to the, to the desires of that God. Right? Our job is to be people who lovingly live out the gospel so that those around us will come to know him, and as they come to know him, he will change their hearts to live in accordance with his ways. As 1 Peter 2.12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Church, we aren't the morality police focused on cultural behavior modification. We are a people set apart to live differently that, in the light, that the light of the gospel would shine bright in a world that desperately needs it. But make no mistake, for those of us who want to follow the Bible, who do take God's word seriously, the Bible is very clear. 
that marriage is for one biological man and one biological woman. That is what we are to practice as the people of God. And that is what we are to teach our children as they navigate a world that screams the opposite. Now, there is a lot more to say about that. Probably full series and seminars worth. But Jesus moves on, and so must we. The second thing that Jesus teaches about God's creation is that marriage is exclusive. Right? Marriage is exclusive. Jesus continues in verse 8. He says, And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Right? Marriage is built to be a pair, not a trio or a group. Right? So in this text here, Jesus excludes the practice of polygamy. Right? One man, multiple wives. He excludes the practice of polyamory, relationships with or amongst multiple people. He excludes the practice of open marriages or any other sort of adultery by one or both parties. Right? It is impossible to be one with multiple people at the same time. Right? You can't give your whole self, which is intended in marriage, to more than one person. Marriage is exclusive. Right? The sexual intimacy, the emotional intimacy, the spiritual intimacy of marriage is created to be limited to husband and wife. Not something to be shared or limited because it's being divided up. As Jesus says, two become one fully and completely. The next point comes out of the last one. Marriage is permanent. Marriage is permanent. If what Jesus says is true, that two become one, they, they can't be extracted from one another. Right? If, if I mix two cups of water together, once they've become one, they, they cannot be pulled apart. Right? They don't exist as individual elements anymore, but have become one entity. Right? Jesus says in verse 8, they are no longer two but one. Right? Jesus' language is radical, isn't it, for us to hear? Especially in a culture that worships individuality and personal autonomy. He says, you are no longer separate. You have become one. You see, I think that the typical picture of marriage, maybe in our culture, is like Velcroing two separate things together. Right? We stick ourselves together, but we're largely distinct, right? And if we want to, we can unstick ourselves. And while it may be difficult and it may hurt a bit, it's a possibility. Well, the image that Jesus gives is not of two separate things that come together at one point, but rather that they become so intertwined that they become indistinguishable from one another, like two golden rings melted down and then combined into a new single ring. Right? That is God's intention for marriage, that a couple would live as one being for life because their coming together cannot be undone, and it would be absurd to even try to imagine extracting two parts that have come together as one. Next, Jesus teaches that marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. In our world, we're inundated with the language of contracts. Right? Employment contracts, cell phone contracts, insurance, rental, mortgage contracts, you name it. If you're paying for something, there's likely a contract involved. And so it makes some sense that, that we can mistakenly see marriage as a contract as well. But marriage is not a contract. Biblical marriage is a covenant. 
And there are two main differences between a contract and a covenant. The first difference is the stipulations, right? When it comes to contracts, each side agrees to certain stipulations. Services provided, monies paid, ground rules, etc. And as long as both sides carry out their end of the deal, the contract remains in place. However, if one party does not hold up their end of the contract, the contract has been broken and the other party is released from their conditions. If a tenant stops paying rent, the landlord doesn't need to provide lodging anymore. If your lawn company doesn't cut the lawn, you don't need to pay them. But a covenant doesn't work that way. A covenant is a commitment from both sides to uphold their end of the deal regardless of what is coming back. Right? At a wedding, we don't say, I will love you as long as you love me back. Or, I will make you dinner as long as you shovel the snow. Right? It's not a contract based on mutual follow-through. Rather, we say things like in good times and bad times. It doesn't need to be good for me to be committed. For richer or for poorer, for sickness and in health, the commitment that I make in a covenant is a 100% commitment. It's not 50-50. It's I am all in 100%. And it does not hinge on the other side holding up their end of the equation. Right? And the second major difference between a contract and a covenant is who a covenant promise is made to. Right? A biblical covenant is initiated by God. So in a marriage covenant, you're not simply making a promise to the one you're marrying that you'll be faithful to them. You're also making a promise to God that you will be faithful to your spouse. So a husband promises his wife and God that he will love and cherish her forever. And a wife promises her husband and God that she will love and cherish him forever. And the covenant is instituted by God. Right? Which is why Jesus says in verse 9, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See who joined this together? Who's at the center of this covenant? God. God did this. It wasn't your promise and their promise and ta-da. God did this. God joined this covenant together. You see, while well, a contract is made between two people, a covenant is a commitment made before God and to God that you'll be faithful to the promises you make, and it really doesn't depend on what they promise. Your concern when you make a covenant commitment is that you follow through on your end regarding what you promise to God. That's a big difference, isn't it? Marriage is meant to be a covenant between the couple and God, and therefore it is God who seals the covenant, and it is God who is wronged when the covenant is broken. Biblical marriage is not a contract that's void when we lose our feelings, when the other stops making us happy, when we just can't seem to get along anymore, or when I, I want to follow different dreams. Biblical marriage is a covenant that is meant to last a lifetime because covenants aren't meant to be broken. There aren't out clauses in covenants. And it's here where we see that biblical marriage as a covenant is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. That's the last point. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. 
You see, human marriage covenants, as they remain faithful, provide a picture of the covenant that God has made with his people and the redemption he brought us through Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? In Ephesians 5.32, Paul, in talking about human marriage, says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Right? Marriage, Paul says, provides a picture of the love and commitment, the divine romance between Christ and his people, the depth of the love that the groom, Christ, showed for his bride, the church, and how nothing could or would separate Christ from his bride, no matter how bad the marriage would get, no matter how unfaithful the church would be. Pastor Chris Price of the Way Church in Vancouver says this, the story of Scripture from Genesis 3 onwards, tells the tale of irreconcilable differences that should have ended in an eternal divorce. If ever there was a case for unbridgeable differences, it was between sinful people and a holy God. But our maker did a miracle. He still made the marriage work. Irreconcilable differences can be mended by the gospel and bridged by the grace of God. You see, while Christ had every right to step away, he remains faithful to his people and shows us grace that we don't deserve, extends us forgiveness for our wrongs, and showers us with love even when we give nothing back. And friends, that is how our marriages can be a picture of Christ and the church. When we extend forgiveness at a cost to ourselves, when we show grace that isn't deserved, when we love our spouses unconditionally, when we sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the other, we provide a window to our kids and to the church and to the world about what Christ is like. And our marriages tell the love story of something much greater than simply between two people. Biblical marriages are to reflect the love of Christ to a world that may ever only see love, grace, and forgiveness at work through the marriages that they see that honor Christ and one another. Now, we could spend an entire series going beyond the text in front of us, unpacking and explaining all of God's purposes and desires for marriage, but, but for our purposes today, we're going to stick to the text and let Jesus' words dictate what we leave with regarding the nature of God's divine plan for marriage. And he has taught that marriage is an exclusive, permanent covenant between one man and one woman and God that provides a picture of Christ's love for his people. Right? That's marriage, biblically. And it's at this point where Jesus finally is at the place where an answer is possible to the original question about divorce. And it comes from what he has taught about marriage. In verse 9, he says, therefore, right? So I've said all this stuff. After all of this groundwork, therefore, let no one separate a marriage. Right? If Jesus is right and marriage is permanent, if Jesus is right and marriage is a covenant, if Jesus is right and marriage is a picture of the unending love of Christ, then what makes us think that it's God's will for this to be broken? God's intention for marriage leaves no room for divorce, right? While the Pharisees are asking when divorce is a good thing, Jesus says divorce is never a good thing. 
Divorce is not a part of God's intended plan for marriage. God did not design marriage to be temporary. He did not design marriage without clauses. That's what it comes down to. Divorce is not in God's plan for marriage. Now, I know there are some who are thinking, when's Cam going to talk about the exceptions? Because there are some biblical exceptions where divorce, while never mandated or promoted, is permissible. Jesus himself, in Matthew 19.9, says that adultery is an exception. That divorce is permissible when adultery takes place because the covenant has been broken and the couple are no longer simply one. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, says that abandonment is an exception. That if an unbelieving spouse leaves and abandons the family, the family can move forward unlinked from the one who left. And while not explicitly spoken, there is biblical rationale to add abuse to that list of exceptions that, that may allow for divorce as an option if one spouse or any children involved are in danger. And I, I just... <laughs> I just want to say to those of you who have found yourself in such circumstances, I'm sorry. That's not the way your marriage was supposed to be. That was not God's design for marriage. Church, we do need to acknowledge the reality of sin. Right? God's plan for marriage does not include divorce, but it also didn't include adultery, abandonment, or abuse. And so there are exceptions to that rule. The scriptures make that clear. However, we need to know that these situations are the exception and not the rule. And that is what Jesus is teaching here, right? The Pharisees are trying to make a rule out of the exception, and Jesus won't allow it, right? As Sinclair Ferguson says, the Pharisees' primary interest laying seeing how far they could go and still remain within the letter of the law, right? They were creating excuses and looking for permission to affirm divorce, But Jesus' primary interest was in restoring men to the lifestyle for which they had been made. Right? Marriage, in its design, is good, faithful, without adultery, permanent, without abandonment, loving, without abuse, and covenantal, without divorce. That is God's plan for marriage. That is God's best for his people. And that is God's way with us. He is infinitely faithful and forgiving. He is eternally committed and gracious. He is so unconditionally loving that there is nothing we can do to prompt him to leave us. So for those who are here today who are struggling who feel like they're up against the ropes, who are considering separation or divorce, don't do it. Don't give up. Remember what marriage is. Remember the covenant you made before God. Remember that you are not individuals, but you are one, and follow the lead of Christ to commit to unconditional love and find help. Reach out to the church. 
We can encourage you, pray for you. We can suggest marriage counselors who love the Lord and can help you fight for your marriage. But be encouraged. Press on and let the power of the gospel (laughs) because the gospel can infiltrate your life. Infiltrate your marriage and provide an illustration to all you know about what the love of Jesus looks like. This isn't going to get easier. And for those here today who are divorced, first of all, I'm so sorry for the painful journey that you've walked through. You, more than the most, Understand the hurt and the residue of something that was not in God's intended plan. But God is a God of redemption. May you too be encouraged by the unconditional love of Christ. There is grace for you because Jesus doesn't give up. You are loved, you are forgiven, you are free today to live within the purpose that God has for you. There's no disqualification. There is no asterisk beside your name. There is today and the opportunity to say yes, to seek his best, his plan, his design from now on. As Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Live in that freedom. May we all live in that freedom. Right? It goes for us all, doesn't it? Remember last week? Our common denominator is that we are all sinners in desperate need of the grace of God. Single, married, divorced, struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, it doesn't matter. There is one who will never give up on us, throw in the towel or hand us our papers. May we all experience and receive the love of Christ and take our cues from his extravagant commitment to us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your grace in all of our lives. God, whenever we talk about sin and what's best and what's not, God, I pray that you would remind each of us about our own sin. Or that we would realize that we have no clout or ability to cast the first stone. Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Remind us of our sin. And Lord, may we be people who are able to bring your love into every circumstance we find ourselves in because we know what it's like to miss the mark. God, we pray. Lord, I I just want to lift up couples, families in this church that are struggling. God, we pray that you would show up in an incredible way. Lord, that as a church, we could celebrate years from now what you have done. God, I pray for those who are maybe in the midst 
of a separation or a divorce or have just come through one recently or are still reeling from years and years ago, Lord, we pray that you would be a healer. God, that you, Lord, would heal any wound that remains. God, that you would come and fill your people up with your presence. God, that we would be healed and we would be free to live in the hope and the joy and the love and the peace that you have for each and every one of us. So God, we pray that you would be glorified. Ultimately, that's what we pray for in every circumstance, in every life, in every situation as we seek to live out your best for us, but as we lean upon your incredible grace. God, help us to look a little bit more like you every day. Help us to be people who are committed and loving and who never give up because you are a God who is forgiving and loving and never gives up on us. Amen. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.com.